G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Chapter 21, verse 14 there. Uh, Folks, it's my read of this passage this morning that John has moved beyond just giving evidence and uh, proofs, uh, grounds to believe that it actually happened. It did. He is risen. Um, If there's even a shadow of doubt remaining in your mind, then backtrack, please. Look at the other two accounts of Jesus' resurrection when he's appeared to his disciples, already appeared to the 12, well, minus Thomas the first time, or the second time when Thomas was there. Uh, Then Jesus said to Thomas in chapter 20, verse 27, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. No, folks, I think John, has moved, John the author here, has moved on from heaping up the evidence. He has risen. Uh, no, I think he's moved on from that. In a word, I think today we are looking at a passage that's all about discipleship. How to be a bona fide disciple of Jesus in light of the reality of the resurrection. The truth of Easter Sunday shines clear as day, so now it's time to talk about how it is going to shape our lives. Shall we pray together as we begin? Father God in heaven, this Easter, please grant that we move from mere assent, that yes, He is risen, to a considered and a consistent reflection of that fact in real life. Lives that bear the impression that we believe in life beyond the grave and in sins forgiven and in life without end. May we be called to repentance this morning, where frankly our lives bear too little resemblance to the Easter reality. And please, Father, teach us us to express a genuine and a robust hope. May we learn to encourage one another in that hope, and all the more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a little quote for you. I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. It's pretty grim, isn't it? I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. Can you think of a more pitiful, a more sad testimony than that? Um, I'll read it to you in context. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his brilliant book, The Screwtape Letters, it's a work of fiction, okay? And and the story imagines uh, a senior demon tutoring a junior demon in the the finer points of uh, shipwrecking a man's faith, how to destroy the faith of a particular Christian man. Uh, These demons, as Lewis imagines it, they spend their days tempting and luring and wrecking human faith... Uh, It is their sport, it is their craft, in fact, it seems to be their work. They seem to be employed in it, forced to it. Um, And ultimately, they mean, of course, to land us all down there in hell. Now, this particular passage, uh, the senior demon tutoring the junior demon is praising the effectiveness of, of two strategies in tandem. First of all, convincing us 
that it's all rather unreal. Uh, that, you know, God and Jesus and prayer and Easter, the whole lot, cultivate the conviction, cultivate the sense that it's just not really real. And then, once you've got your pitiful subject in that frame of mind, then distract them, distract him, so that he never gives it careful thought, never really faces it head on, distract us from rediscovering the truth. And voila, then you will have shipwrecked his faith. Uh, now, remember, it's a, it's a, I'll quote it to you, it's a, a demon speaking, so it's, it's all back to front. Good is bad and bad is good. You'll see, you'll see what I mean. Here we go, I'll take it part the way through. As this condition becomes more fully established, you will be gradually freed from the tiresome business of providing pleasures as temptations, as the uneasiness and his reluctance to face it cut him off more and more from all real happiness and as habit renders the pleasures of vanity and excitement and flippancy at once less pleasant and harder to forgo, for that's what habit fortunately does to a pleasure, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. Do you see? He's talking about how to distract. You no longer need a good book which he really likes to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste his time not only in conversation that he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. It's like he saw the internet ahead of time, isn't it? You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, whatever that is, I think it means parties, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. All of the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return, so that at last he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. Folks, here's our in for today's passage. What on earth has happened to the disciples come John chapter 21? What on earth has happened to these men? Can we read it together from verse 1? Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, uh, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, John, the author of this book, and two other disciples were together. Okay, so the gang's all there. There they are gathered. Jesus is going to appear to them again. Uh, the gangs, well, seven of them are there anyway, and Christ is risen. We know that, we've seen it twice before, remember, this is the third time that he appeared uh, to the group. Um, in fact, more than that, if you count Mary and other appearances. Anyway, and so the stage is set, isn't it? They already know that he's risen, and so the stage is surely set, Something. it's time for something big. It's time for something missionary-ish. It's time for some going and getting. It's time for something kind of like the book of Acts, where we see them start preaching to crowds and people being converted and big things happening, isn't it? Isn't that the time? Isn't that what the stage is set for? 
Well, what's Peter's plan? Let's go. Verse 3. So they're all gathered together and now verse 3, Peter says, I'm going out to fish. Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I don't want to say that these disciples are quite distracted a la Screwtape, that it's as bad as all that, that they are wasting their days, what was it, uh, watching a, a dead fire in a cold room, um, that they're going to get to the end having spent their life doing neither what they ought nor what they liked. But here's what I do see. I do see a directionlessness in these men, especially if you compare it, contrast it to what we see of these guys. Can you imagine this passage appearing somewhere in Acts? It wouldn't make sense to us. We'd say, men, what are you doing? You're directionless here. This fishing expedition and the dialogue that ensues do not read like the lives of men on a spirit-empowered mission, writes one commentator. And I reckon that is, that is bang on. So this Easter, here is our simple focus. A short sermon, two simple points on this one question. How does Easter give direction to disciples of Jesus? How does, how must, how should Easter give direction to the lives of disciples of Jesus? Um, Since we believe in the reality of the resurrection, it's the third time that we've seen him. We know that he's alive. So how does that give direction uh, to Christian disciples? So step one, point number one, come with me into the text, uh, is that Remember, we are disciples, we are followers, and at Easter, we've got to remember to take our lead from the Lord, okay? We're disciples, we're followers, and we take our lead from the Lord. Now, just notice how Jesus, in this whole encounter, He isn't harsh with them, but He absolutely sets the direction. He is one step ahead, right the way through this encounter. Follow it with me. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Verse 4, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Am I the only one who's surprised that they actually did? (laughs) That they followed the instruction of some guy like a hundred yards off about how they should go about fishing? (laughs) Am I the only one surprised that they actually... I wonder maybe, even now, if maybe some of them were beginning to twig, just suspect, maybe, could it be Jesus? Because just some random bellowing advice across the waves at these, you know, work-weary, fishing-all-night, catchless fellas... Uh, Well, as as Don Carson put it, uh, you know, regulars here will know that I quote, in John's Gospel at least, from a bloke called Don Carson, and usually when you've got to tune right in, because he's such an academic-y kind of guy, uh, well, in this rare moment of sarcasm, he said this, he said, it is hard to see how Jesus' exhortation to throw the net on the starboard side greatly differs from the advice that fishermen these days have to endure Try casting over there. You often catch them over there. If, Carson suggests, there are some fishermen these days who have not yet experienced this delight, I recommend they take my children with them on their next trip. 
It's weird, right, that they follow his instructions, but it is building this picture. He is risen, he is still your Lord, he is still in command, and I guarantee you he is more than one step ahead of you, always. Keep reading, verse 6. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John's way of referring to himself, the author here, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it, and some bread. So it's not just that he's one step ahead in the sense that, you know, throw your net on the side, that side of the boat, not this side of the boat, and then you'll catch a lot, and then they did. That, that's true, but Jesus is way ahead of them. Did you spot it there in verse 9 as well? When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. What do you mean with fish on it? Where did they come from? We have been fishing all night, slaving our guts out, we've got nothing and Jesus rolls in and not only starts calling the shots, but he's already got fish cooked up. Folks, really simple point here. We take our lead from the Lord because he is our Lord who is already way ahead of us. I'm taking this, I suppose, as a a symbol, an emblem for us of the leadership of our Lord as we follow him in life and as he goes on to pave the way, pioneer the way in their ministry. Now, if we take this as a broader point, I suppose it's saying that his church, Christ's church, will not die for lack of direction. It will not die for lack of direction, as if Jesus was unprepared for the modern world, as if Jesus were incompetent, as if somehow the modern world had taken Christ by surprise, no. Now, what does that look for us as disciples, as followers? I think it could mean a few things. If, if we were to take our lead from the Lord, if we acknowledge that, yeah, sure, He's Lord, He's one step ahead of us, what would that mean for us? On the personal level, I think we've got to ask, don't we, will I let Him be Lord of my life? Will I actually let Him take the lead in my life? Even commanding the inconvenient of me? Even when I'm work-weary and catchless and been slaving all night, whatever that happens to look like, you know, metaphorically, in our lives. Now, perhaps this Easter we could ask ourselves this, we could say, does my life as a Christian have any sense of direction? I don't mean your life in general, you know, are you career-minded, are you going somewhere in your career, you know, I don't mean, you know, are you taking your kids somewhere in terms of their... No, 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 in your Christian life... Is it marked by having some sense of direction because there is a Lord out in front leading you onward toward maturity, onward in growth as a Christian? Am I really going somewhere in my faith? Have I even got a real faith? That's the prior question that's worth asking. It's on the front of our personal lives. I I do think there is a danger, folks, in uh, what I call next-year-itis, it's the, uh, the, the ailment that says, yeah, I'll do it next year. I'll work on my faith next year. When things have settled down a bit, when things have got a little bit 
quieter. I'll join that Bible study next year because life will be quieter then. I'll take that ministry on next year. It's a good thing to do, but I'll get to it next year. Can I just say, yeah, yeah, I know there are exceptions, but I can think of almost no one for whom next year proved quieter than this year. Do you know what I mean? This is life accumulates, doesn't it? Uh, it accumulates tasks, responsibilities, relationships, priorities, demands, baggage, dependence, mortgages, sickness, health issues. Put it this way, no, it may not be convenient this year, but do you really want to leave it another year, another year, another year? Next year, itis. It's just a caution on the personal front. Will he be Lord of my life? I guess the other angle before I move on quickly is, will he be Lord of our life? It's not just the individuals, is it? But it's our life together as a church corporately. Will he be Lord of our life, our church community, setting the direction for us as a church? Um, You know, am I trying to take youth night or are you trying to take your Bible study or whatever ministry you're involved in? in the direction where Jesus is out in front, where you take your cues from him, where I do, or not? Or is something else driving the agenda? Do we lead, uh, do we plan, do we scheme straight from the mission of Jesus? When I think about youth night, is youth night still about making and growing disciples for Jesus or is it about parent-pleasing? I don't see a massive conflict right now in youth night for that, but it can happen, can't it? And perhaps some of you who have been involved in youth nights elsewhere, youth groups elsewhere, may have seen this conflict. Are we making and growing disciples of Jesus? You'll have to tease out the the details for the ministries that you're involved in. No, He is risen and He is Lord and it falls to us not to set the direction, not to come up with it, not to try and get out in front of Him. No, we take our lead from the Lord, firstly. But secondly, and more briefly, I I said it would be brief, I'd better stick to that, hadn't I? Um, Do we sometimes get to wondering, well, yeah, but Jesus does his thing, big Jesus, Lord Jesus, all-powerful Jesus, and my efforts, well, are they that important? I mean, yes, I should follow him in some sense in my life, but in the end, what difference is my little effort going to make? What contribution can I ever make to the big mission of Jesus um, in the world? Well, to that, I want to say... I think this passage urges us to expect that even our little efforts, they count. And that is just the way that Jesus seems to do it as the Lord in his mission. He actually, kind of weirdly, the risen Jesus wants us active and involved and contributing to his work in the world. Let's uh, read along with me. I think that's the symbolism here with the the breakfast, actually. So from verse 9, when they landed, remember, here they are coming up now. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. What do you mean bring some of our fish? You're the Lord, you're out in front, you know our needs before 
We even discover them. You're leading. Haven't you got enough? Just keep in mind here, uh, of course, (laughs) those 153 fish, where they came from. Uh, Keep in mind who told you where to find them. Keep in mind who provided them for you. But yes, bring some of them because we're going to use them. Yes, the ones that you slogged for, the ones that you fished for, the ones that you hauled in, the ones that you've now counted to be able to share them out and dragged up the beach. Now, am I reading too much into it? I, I just think it's symbolic. When he calls us to work in his mission, we should expect our work to matter. When he calls us to work in his mission... We should expect our work to matter. And I don't mean call as in like a big highfalutin ministers and elders and deacons kind of sense. No, you Christian, we Christian, we call to the Lord in the gospel. So expect our lives for Jesus to matter to him and matter in his mission. I suppose if you flip it back around the other way for a moment, if we want to see gospel work make progress, but we haven't, so to speak, put down the net on the right side, haven't hauled it in, haven't dragged it up, then we can't complain that breakfast runs a wee bit short, can we? Do you see what I mean? Uh, Fathers with training our children in the Lord. Husbands and wives as we help one another in our walks in the Lord. Adults, and I don't just mean parents, but adults in nurturing the emerging generations here at church. They're some of the obvious ones. Are we doing the work of hauling, of dragging, of letting the nets down when, frankly, it's been a long night and we're cold and a little bit grumpy? We can't complain when the breakfast runs a wee bit short, can we? But positively, flip it back around the proper way now, positively expect your efforts to be used in the hands of the Lord. Does that mean every single time we'll get exactly the results that we're expecting and hoping for and looking for? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Is it automatic or guaranteed? Pull the lever and out pops results? No, I don't think it tells us that. But sometimes, and gosh, there's a real joy when it does, isn't there? To conclude then, this is the third time that Jesus appeared to the gang. Fellas, you don't need more proof. You've got the proof. It's the third time. We, uh, uh, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Maybe they needed a kick in the pants. I think they got that, didn't they? But what direction does Easter give to our lives? What direction does the resurrection of the Lord Jesus give to our lives? Our Lord is risen and he's out in front in his mission to the world and it pleases him to involve us in that mission. The question is, are we following, brothers and sisters? Can we pray together? Our great God in heaven, we see in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, your mighty power, defeating death and bringing life and all of the hope that comes with that. But Father, too often perhaps... We tend to think of the resurrection as a thing off there in history past, the resurrection of Jesus, and off there in history future. And we tease out too little the implications of it for our lives today. And Father, thank you that Jesus continues his mission, even in Hobart, even in Howrah, that he is at work amongst us and that he's at work through us. Father, what a 
privilege it is to be welcomed into, involved in Christ's mission to the world. And we pray, Father, would you please keep teaching us, keep guiding us in how we can contribute to the mission of Jesus in the world. But Father, may we not slide into thinking then that it's just about work and drudgery for the message of the resurrection is about joy and it is a message of joy that we carry to the community around us, to the children that you've given to us, to the families that you've placed us in. Father, please work the joy and peace of the resurrection into our hearts so much so that it propels us outwards for the glory of Jesus in the world and we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.